and welcome back to the CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Molly Rao, with my co-host, Jessica Rickert. Today's podcast features Tani McGregor. Her work centers around using sketch notes to help students make their thinking visible and improve comprehension. Tani shares specific ways to support students using sketch notes. Welcome, Tani. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, first of all, it's my pleasure to be here. And thanks to both of you and all of the CCIRA members and leaders for the just ups and downs of the past couple of years with trying to continue professional learning for everyone in your community. I should say our community. Um, You have been resilient and like just the learning hasn't stopped and I can't wait until uh, our face-to-face meeting. Um, But yeah, so I live here in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I've lived here most of my life and have been actually working and teaching in the same school district. Uh, This is starting my 33rd year. And um, I I started as a first grade teacher, but really found uh, my place in third grade and taught third grade for a number of years and worked as a literacy coach and gifted specialist. And currently I'm a teacher on special assignment in my district. And from year to year, my responsibilities change, but um, mostly working with um, libraries and challenging kids and discovery opportunities and experiences in classrooms. And so um, after, after all these years, like it's still brand new every year. And and I find that really exciting. So I'm happy to happy to talk today. Nice. That sounds exciting. So you wrote a book a couple of years ago, Ink and Ideas, and around the idea of sketch notes, which I think is still kind of a new idea that people may have not heard of. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm, sure. So, um, you know, one of the questions that I often hear um, at conferences or or workshops is just like, oh, you know, I, I'm looking at your book or I got a copy of your book and I'm curious how long it took you to write it. And in this case, I'd say that's a really hard question for me to answer because I feel like it's been like 50 years in the making. (laughs) Um, I'll be 55 next month. And I know that from, uh, I, I mean, I have memories, even as a preschooler of just wanting to make a mark on paper. Um, memories of like being in church and my parents trying to keep me quiet, memories of being in primary grades and being asked by teachers uh, in kind ways, mostly, uh, to like stop making doodles on the corner of the paper and, you know, writing the same word over and over and that kind of thing. Um, So I've always had this like um, proclivity, I guess you could say, to want to sketch or, or even like make my thinking visible. I think that came along later, but even just make random marks on a page or repeated marks. So, so um, I I just started thinking about that uh, maybe over the past 10 years, just about how I've noticed other people in my family do that. Uh, At the beginning of Ink and Ideas, there's um, a little tribute to my grandpa who only had a fifth grade education. I come from an Appalachian family in Kentucky and many of my relatives, um, were forced with you know the tough decision in elementary or junior high years to to continue school or work and help make ends meet and so that was the case for my grandpa but he always had a pen in his hand when he was reading and whether it was a newspaper or any book anytime i ever saw him reading he was circling things and marking up the margins and all those things that as a classroom teacher i was teaching my kids how to do that to show their thinking so I think that's really fascinating that nobody told him to do that and he wasn't doing it to study for a test or anything like that. It was just, I think, and I wish I could have this conversation with him now, but I, I think it was because he realized that his understanding was deeper if he was thinking through it with a pen in his hand. So, um, and I've, I've over the years had a lot of kids in my classes who demonstrate that kind of tendency to want to like make something, you know, um, visible and shareable on paper. So 
when I think about it that way, it's really not so much about visual art. It's not so much about like making your your notes or your thinking look beautiful or colorful, although that sort of happens as a byproduct of doing this and practicing it. Um, but it's more just about uh, thinking about how like just um, making your thinking appear in an empty space, whether it's just a blank piece of paper or a sticky note or the margin or a graphic organizer, like your, your thinking changes. Like for me, it's almost like I can feel it a difference in my brain, in my body when I'm doing that. I feel more relaxed. I feel more confident. I feel like I can take a risk um, because it's my thinking. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, the uniqueness actually builds confidence in me. And I've seen that same thing happen with kids. So I guess all of my thinking about this over the past few years has really just intersected with the work I've done on reading comprehension, because I see this as yet another tool uh, for us to, you know, present to kids, let them experience it, and then let them choose, uh, choose it if they, if they think it helps them in some way. So um, the first 40 or so pages of the book really explore studies about this. So like, not just um, Tanny's grandpa and what she noticed in him, but uh, people who have like observed these behaviors in others and have done some you know, more controlled studies about what the benefits might be, um, that all is very interesting to me. And, you know, short list of benefits would be uh, increased recall. Um, if you're making your thinking visible while you're reading or listening, um, uh, a kind of calm or relaxation that comes over many people who, who are sketching or taking some kind of visual notes. Um, a greater sense of engagement along the way. And maybe my favorite benefit would be the ability to better focus uh, and tune out some of the noise in your head. If you are, uh, as I've heard Kylene Beers say, like reformulating your thinking. Um, and so for all those reasons and more, I think kids like deserve the, the experience. And, um, and like I said, you know, after they've experienced a couple times and can be metacognitive about it a little bit, then they can start to choose whether it's helpful for them and when and where to use it. I love that you brought up metacognition just now because I was sitting here thinking about that. And I also really like that you mentioned, you know, some of the research and, you know, the specific things that kids' brains are doing that are kind of benefiting them, the calming, the, you know, kind of the processing around it that helps them have better recall later um as far as metacognition like I'm big into that and I also do a lot of sketch noting with my students um and I'm very explicit about those things with my kids and do you think that's a good practice like when you know and I don't tell it to them all at once but you know the first time I introduce adding some visuals to their notes and you know, kind of how we can go about that and how to take the pressure off. Because for some kids, there's a lot of pressure around that. So, you know, the first thing that I do, the first time we draw, we take the pressure off. And <clears throat> while I can draw beautiful things, I tell them, we don't have time for that. And so, you know, I have all my, you know, silly little stick figure drawings and things that go into what we're visualizing. But the very first time we do it, I just talked about the, the processing piece. You're going to remember this better later because the act of trying to turn the words that I'm saying or the words that you're seeing into a visual that requires extra thinking and it builds stronger pathways. And, you know, I talk a lot about pathways in my class. So we talk about, you know, like this like little deer trail through a forest that the more we trample on, you know, the more it looks like a true trail and a path that we can keep walking on and find again and get back to that information. Um, so thinking about that, you know, full, full story there, um, thinking about that, how or maybe what's a good progression, because that's where I start, what's a good progression for a teacher who is going to maybe teach the kids metacognition, who is going to try and build sketching into some of their practice, where would you have them start? What would they do first? Well, first of all, I have to say, I wish we were in the same room together 
with a group of kids because I think it would be just so fun and powerful. Um, maybe someday, like that's a new dream. So maybe someday that would happen. <laughs> um, but I think there are, there's no one right way to go about it. So I think there are so many things to consider always. Of course, knowing your students, um, knowing yourself. And um, for me, it often will have a lot to do with, is it a group of students I'm going to be with over time? Is it, you know, if you're a, um, an instructional coach, maybe you're seeing these students just periodically. Um, but I, I love the things you said about like emphasizing process over product at first. I love that analogy of the pathways. That's so great. Um, I've, I've seen um, different examples from how teachers have launched this, but I'd say one thing for sure is that beginnings are really important. And so I love the idea of noticing and naming this practice, um, you know, in a really explicit way with kids. And also, just like I did briefly here um, a minute ago, letting kids know the why behind it and giving them specifics, even with kids who are in primary grades, I feel like they deserve that. Like they, they are curious about why we're doing this and all in, in a, a little more pared down way, share with them that, you know, hey, there's research about this. Like people are studying this and let's, let's see if what they're finding holds true with you. And so I think kids get really excited about like their own personal discovery around it when they know that it's, it's part of a larger kind of work in the world. Um, you know, I also let them know that, you know, silly little things like there's a world sketch note day and there's a, a, a world sketch note meetup in different countries each year and like designers and digital content producers and marketers, like all kinds of people are thinking about visual language. And um, it's just like how you're building a, a linguistic vocabulary. So you have this lexicon and it grows over time in your life. And like, I learn a new word every day, I'm sure. Um, and so it's the same way with visual language. So you can start to learn little icons or quick little shortcuts for getting your thinking on the paper. And every time you do that, you're increasing your visual lexicon. So all those kinds of conversations I think are important to have. I, if I'm going to launch this practice with a, in like a class period, or let's say I'm in a middle school and we have one bell together uh, and I wanna like launch the practice and then the classroom teacher is gonna be sort of taking it from there and experimenting during read alouds or with uh, chapter by chapter in a novel or something like that. If time allows, I love to start with a picture book that speaks to how imperfections are part of the process. And there are so many great picture books out there that can do just that. I have a favorite. It's Barney Salzberg's Beautiful Oops. Uh, I should have had the book here uh, so I could look at it uh, as I'm talking to you, but it's this little yellow book. Um, and on every page, it gives you examples of things that can go wrong when you have a pen in your hand. You can make a stray mark, your paper can get torn, uh, it can get folded. And so he just sort of gives us that language to use. That's not a mistake, it's a beautiful oops and we're all gonna make them. And so um, launching with that kind of conversation, uh, the girl who never made mistakes, that would be another great picture book to use. Um, I think that's really helpful to kids. And just like you said, um, trying to make the whole experience sort of um, scar free, <laughs> you know, like uh, sociologist researcher Brene Brown talks about like how we all have art scars. And so I think that's true for many of us. Uh, we don't want to contribute to that, do we? So um, we want to make it as comfortable and um, just enjoyable as possible. And I think that's pretty easy to do, especially if you're willing to model your sketch notes in front of students on chart paper, you know, digitally on an iPad, just projecting your thinking and let them see your stick people and your mistakes and how you don't let that like trip you up. You just keep on going with your thinking. Um, so when I'm launching sketch notes, like I said, I might start with a picture book, but I would probably just introduce students to six or seven different sketch note features that anyone can do, that anyone can use. And they're really helpful, like connectors and arrows or um, changing up the lettering style to show emphasis or interest. And so um, I wanna give kids those simple little tools 
first of all, just so that they have something to use right away when we try it, but secondly, to prove to them that, yeah, you can do this um, and you might even find some joy in it and find some of those benefits that, that the researchers have found. And then we'll try a common experience together. So it might be that we take a topic that they don't have a lot of background knowledge around and just explore something new where there are some, some facts to be shared and maybe I have some images to share with them. And um, we'll all try sketchnoting around a common topic just for five, 10 minutes. And then we'll take a gallery walk if we're all in the same physical space together. If we're learning virtually together, I've had experiences where kids are actually sharing their sketch notes if they want to, or everybody holding them up to the camera so we can all see how unique everyone's thinking is, even around the same topics. And that's part of what I've found to be the most exciting about visual note-taking is that kids' identities can be expressed and influence the kind of thinking that shows up on the page. And so it's, you know, I think for many of us through the years, especially when we start feeling um, stifled or pressured by all of the, the things we have to juggle when it comes to standards and curriculum documents and pacing guides and the urgency we feel inside, we're always looking for ways we can hold on to creativity for, you know, for dear life and make sure that we're giving kids the opportunities that they need um, for self-expression. And I think this does all of that. So we don't have to like put content on hold to do this. We can learn the content through doing this. I don't know of a single content area or grade level where this wouldn't be an appropriate um, experience to, to try out with students uh, because it can get us where we wanna go in mathematics. Uh, or science and is really a natural fit in both of those examples because mathematics and science use visual language all the time. Um, so I think just giving kids a few simple tools at the beginning, um, setting the tone for taking a, a risk and making mistakes and then having a go at it. And uh, after that, in my experience, it sort of takes care of itself. I'll have students right away who ask me, when can we do this again? I'll have students who come back the very next day um, with a one pager that they created while they were watching a, a video or when they were, you know, sitting at their brother's soccer practice. And so they sketch noted a scene out of our read aloud from the day before. Um, so I really think it's one of those things where kids are quick to take it and make it their own and apply it. Um, and of course, we always are like rejoicing as teachers when something like that happens. Well, I have a question. Oh, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> well, I just have a quick comment that I love the idea of choice because we talk about choice and other things, but this is giving choice to kids learning because I think some people still latch onto that two column note taking and that just doesn't fit with everybody's brain. So it's nice to give them some background of here's some like structured choice and how to use it, not just go for it too. Yeah, I so agree with that. And the thing that, you know, you always, when you're writing about an idea to share it, and I'm sure both of you feel the same way when you're sharing an idea with a colleague, or if you're in a, a coaching relationship, you know, you're always running the risk that the idea will be interpreted in a way that's more boxed in or, uh, you know, um, would be used like exactly as you shared it. And, and instead with this, I think it has, it's, you know, just gonna be better when teachers take it and merge it into their best teaching practices. Um, and, you know, I think that's where the power lies. And so it's not just choice with students, it's choice with teachers too. Um, but I, at the end of the book and I, I think these resources might also be available online. I know at Heinemann, they do make available that whole research section of the book for free. So it's almost 40 pages that's available as a download. Um, but uh, I, one of the things my editor and I talked about in the middle of writing the book was, was that very thing, like should, when you're giving kids choice, like what kinds of choices can you 
can you give them when it comes to the actual um, structure of the thinking on the page? And of course, there are as many preferences are there as there are students in your class. Some kids aren't afraid uh, or, you know, or they don't shy away from the blank page at all. But for other students and some of us too, a blank page can be terrifying. And so, um, you know, there are all kinds of templates that can be used. I have friends who use Google drawing templates. There are a lot of sketchnoting apps out there that can give you just the right amount of support. And so, um, you know, when I'm trying to give kids multiple experiences so that they can indeed use these choices um, at just the right times for their thinking, um, I want them to know what it feels like to create a one pager when the structure's up to you. But, you know, what happens when you are um, even in a situation, like you mentioned, like with maybe a two column note taking or co the Cornell note taking format or a KWL chart, like even in those instances, how about making those visual? Like, why couldn't we create a visual version of what we know, what we wanna know and what we learn? So some of this has been a discovery process for me, taking some of those tried and true organizers that I've used through the years and reminding myself that there's no reason why it can't have that dual coding approach uh, applied to it with words and pictures together. Jessica basically stole my question because I was gonna <laughs> talk about that a little bit too and ask about that. And I, it, I, it's great that you brought up Cornell Notes because I was visualizing it in my head because I actually had a friend in a completely different profession who was like, can you teach me to take notes the way you teach your kids to take notes? And she needed a little more structure. So I actually taught her to, you know, we came up with some icons and some things that she could use for her work to put her notes into Cornell. So I love that, you know, again, that choice is something we can empower kids to have. And you kind of mentioned that at the beginning too, that once they, once we've taught them some of these things, they can decide when to apply them. Um, and going back to the focus piece that you had mentioned early on, um, empowering kids to kind of start doodling a little bit and making some visuals as they're listening as a piece of auditory processing. So like you said, so their brains don't wander. I'm totally that person. If I'm not drawing while I'm listening to you, chances are I'm not listening to you because my brain is somewhere else. Yeah. And, you know, most of my colleagues know that about myself. <laughs> so <laughs> thinking about that piece, um, what are some practices and some, um, I don't know, like expectations teachers can set up around this idea of making visuals during the learning process that teachers could maybe use to both empower and maybe contain a little bit? Because I have some students that would get so caught up in their art that they're no longer listening. So how do you kind of balance that a little bit for some of those kids who maybe aren't aware yet of the impact that their drawing can have on their brains and how they can sort of capitalize on the power it has for them? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think I'd like to clarify what could be a misconception. And that is, you know, I'm not advocating for kids like doodling and drawing all day long anytime they want to. Um, of course not. But I do think that more opportunities for students to share visual thinking can be afforded to them than what is currently uh, present or offered in most of our classrooms. And I'm always speaking about myself. Um, First and foremost, like even though I wrote about this, like I still have to remind myself that, yeah, this is like a viable way um, for kids to share their thinking and there are all these benefits to be had. So I think there are a few things we can do as teachers to support kids after we've like maybe launched it in a really solid way, kids know what it is. I think one thing would be just to model it even in quick little fits and starts across time. So maybe in the ELA classroom or science or social studies anywhere, I guess, if you're coming across a, a, a chunk of text or a segment of text that's super complex, maybe the vocabulary is really, you know, uh, high level, maybe it's dense with facts, 
um, modeling how, oh, let's take a little detour here. I think I better sketch this out and just showing them my thinking um, and making it um, like just instant and messy and right there for them to see my process. So that could be in any classroom at any time, doesn't take much time to do. Um, and I think that's a really, you know, important thing to realize is that maybe some of the benefits, and I, I don't know about this, I'm still thinking about it, but I'll ask a question instead of making a statement. Would the benefits all still be there and be as strong if we were sketch noting long passages or complete stories? I don't know. Uh, but I do know that the benefits, I can feel them in myself and see them in my students um, when we're sketch noting uh, during a, you know, a 10 minute read aloud or through a few paragraphs uh, in social studies that aren't really easy, easy to connect to. Um, so I think just sort of like um, all, you know, anytime, any day kind of thing and also showing that this is a tool that you can use across the school day. It doesn't matter which classroom you're in or which subject you're studying, um, that it's ultimately all about thinking. And so that's a great way that we can remind kids about that. Um, I've seen teachers do more concrete things too, like an icon of the day on the whiteboard when the kids walk in. Um, a good source for those would be the noun project. So if you go to the nounproject.com, it's free. Uh, there is a free version, I should say. Um, and hundreds of thousands of icons are right there at your fingertips and things that are you know, easy to replicate, um, even if you're not, uh, don't consider yourself to be creative or a visual artist. So just like we might have a fun word of the day or a picture of the day or something like that, we can have a quick little symbol of the day for kids to increase their visual, visual, um, you know, lexicons. Um, I, I think too, um, just letting kids know, um, like here are, here are all kinds of examples of what sketch notes can look like can also be helpful. So I know at the International Literacy Association conference in 2018, um, during um, one of my sessions, my colleagues and I just assembled a huge collections, collection of sketch notes and put the QR code out in the session. And I still, you know, I get a notification when people visit that collection, that photo gallery, people are still visiting it. I think showing, you don't have to do something that major, but uh, I have a smaller collection of examples that I share with kids. And I want them to see that some of us just use pencil. You don't have to get fancy. You don't have to use markers or, or flare pens or whatever, which I enjoy using the colors. And a lot of kids, I think, are motivated by doing that. Um, but you don't have to. And I want kids to see that, yeah, sometimes um, we can sketch note within graphic organizers that somebody might give us. And we don't have a choice about that part of the assignment. But the way our thinking is shown, um, that can be, you know, how we want it to, how we want it to look. Um, so I think just letting kids know that there are a variety of different ways that this can turn out to be like, I remember I work with a, um, a group of gifted students and this was a couple of years ago. And I even show one of the products of this conversation in the book. Some of these students, uh, were very concerned about making a mistake and did not want to um, do anything, put a mark on the paper unless they knew, unless they thought it was quote unquote right. And so we just stopped for a few minutes and brainstormed all the kinds of things that might appear in a sketch note. And so the first things that came out in the, in the idea storming were things you would expect like dates and names and places. Uh, but as we dug a little deeper, Kids were mentioning things like opinions and controversies and questions and inferences. And so we filled this whole circle. It appears as a, it appears as a plate, like a plate, like a place setting in the book. Um, but we just filled that whole circle with all of the possibilities. And that seemed to really put some kids at ease to know that like, oh, all right. Like, like all these things have been sort of blessed in a way. Like these are all okay things to include. Um, and 
it's sort of sad in a way to me that we have to approach it that way, but we, we know that it's sort of a byproduct of how things are. Um, and so especially in my experience, at least by the time kids get to be nine, 10 years old, they become very um, concerned about taking that risk um, and don't want to give it a try as freely as maybe some of our wonderful four and five-year-old students. So, um, so it's, you know, of course it's all about knowing your students, but I think giving them as many, um, Molly, like you said at the beginning, as many comfortable experiences where there's pleasure associated with it, like the return on investment for that is just huge. So many different directions my brain is going right now. Um, so there was a good one there. Should have written it down. Um, <clears throat> the, you know, you were talking. I don't know if it was answering this last question or the one before, but you were talking a little bit about tackling difficult reading passages. And I know comprehension is really kind of the heart and soul of what you do. And so thinking about tackling a difficult reading passage, you know, you talked about the teacher modeling. Um, if we want to empower them to be able to do that on their own in the absence of a teacher, what might that conversation or lesson look like for you as the teacher? And again, like you said, it differs depending on the students because you have to know them. So that's, you know, I know that question is probably, you know, but give us, give us some hypothetical, a hypothetical class that you might be trying to empower them to go out and use those skills on their own when they're reading independently. Like, what might that look like? What would the, the beginning of training for that look like or sound like? Well, I have done this and I would want to do this. And, and I do this, you know, often with adults and kids. I want them to see how this looks for me outside of school. So, um, you know, yeah, I might be like taking a course or in a webinar where I'm sketchnoting. But for me, mostly it's uh, if I'm attending a lecture or um, at my church in the church bulletin, there's like a panel that's blank. And I'm so glad they designed it that way because it helps me pay attention. So I might bring in a couple of things just from my notebook or, you know, a paper where I was sketch noting or, or taking some kind of notes while I was talking to my dad about like refinancing the house or getting a new car or something like that. Some, you know, real, application of it where it helped me. Um, one example that comes to mind right now is we had, my husband and I had a little medical scare a couple of years ago, and um, we went to the doctor's appointment together. It was about my husband, and the test results had come back, but we hadn't seen them yet, and of course, we were sitting there just waiting um, and our hearts racing um, to talk with the doctor. So when he came in, he sat down and pulled out a blank, a, a notebook with blank paper and started drawing as he talked with us. And immediately it, we felt at ease um, because some of the vocabulary he was using wasn't like words we use and we didn't really understand the depth of some of it. But as he sketch noted it for us, it really deepened our understanding of what was going on. Um, of course, this is like so nerdy, but after the appointment, I said to the doctor, I would love to talk with you sometime about like why you do it that way. And so I got a chance to speak with him and he said he's found that it really, um, you know, it number one helps him to make visible and audible what's inside his head. But number two, and maybe more importantly, um, it helps the patients and their families relax a little bit and feel like they are able to understand, even though he's using um, acronyms that we might not be familiar with and, you know, just a new brand new situation sometimes when you're having those kinds of conversations with a professional. Um, so I think like showing, showing how I've used this and it's not just something I like heard about and I'm trying it with you guys, like it really means something to me. 
And I think kids love it when they know that we've got our hearts in it uh, as much as our minds. And so, and then maybe, you know, asking kids if, if they wouldn't mind thinking about that in their own lives and giving it a try someplace. Um, I've had kids, like I said, bring in um, sketch note examples that weren't assigned. They weren't part of some homework, you know, or anything like that. Uh, I think just one example sort of generates another with kids and the excitement really can grow around that. Um, but it might even be worth, um, you know, even searching for, and I tried to provide a little bit of this at the beginning of the book, um, of other great thinkers, uh, either contemporary or from the past, who have kept notebooks and have thought this way. And so, um, you know, I'm sure that there are lots of connections to be made with authors or illustrators that have been studied in classrooms who use visible, visible thinking, visual thinking, um, and or scientists or mathematicians. So I think that's just big to let kids know that, you know, every one of us is brilliant. And I, I always tell kids that if, if you can't like talk about your thinking, write about it or draw about it, then it's gonna be lost on me. And I really wanna know you in that way. And so um, I think in, and that's something we haven't talked about here yet, but I think it's a really wonderful, sweet, personal kind of way to get to know your students better. And um, I've seen um, parts of my students revealed on paper that some of them maybe never would have been able to or felt comfortable about uh, sharing with me in a, in a conference or just in a conversation. So I think in that way, it's really a way to connect as well. Absolutely, I agree. And I love those connections. And thinking about the making thinking visible piece that, you know, you've been talking about throughout, but kind of got emphasized, you know, even that doctor was able to make his thinking visible to you. So it became a communication tool. Um, I think that's one of my favorite things about it is it empowers even my students who are terrified to write down words on page. Some of them feel and, you know, and not always, some kids are way more comfortable with written words than they are with drawings, but I have plenty of kids who are able to share things with me and are just able to communicate what they know through visuals when they don't feel as comfortable with words. I had a student this year, he was absolutely like mortified about the idea of spelling something wrong. And it probably took me all year to get him to the point where it was like, I don't care if you spell it wrong, put something down on the paper. I just want to know what you know. And he finally kind of was empowered to do that at the end of the year, which was awesome. But before that, we could communicate through pictures. Um, and thankfully, he was pretty verbal. So he talked to me about a lot of things too. But, you know, I can't sit there and have conversations with him the whole time. It was nicer when we were hybrid because I had a really, like he was in a group of like eight kids. So I got to talk to all of them, kind of missed that. I would go to, back to hybrid teaching just so I could have classes of eight. <laughs> but he was in a class of 30 once they were all back together, which was a bummer, but it's all right. Um, but, you know, thinking about those connections and thinking about that communication piece that comes with sketch noting, um, because it is the way that kids can communicate to us what they know. I think there's a potential where teachers might be tempted to grade or assess that work. And so what would be your thoughts on that? Because I have my own thoughts, but <laughs> you get to be the expert of the day. So. Well, I don't feel like an expert about that at all, but I, I really... Um... I really discourage the practice of assigning a grade or a percentage or to be honest, even like trying to, you know, um, create a rubric that works to assess this. I mean, it's kids thinking. And so I, I wanna just always do anything I can to 
um, remind myself and remind students that, you know, our thinking is the most valuable ingredient in all of these processes that, that there can be. So if I believe that, then how can I, how can I diminish that in some way by assigning a grade to it? Um, so for me, it's part of the process. And so I'll use an example from a first grade classroom. Um, there's a school where I work with the teachers about on a monthly basis um, and have worked with them over the past few years. And in spring of, this is a couple years ago, in spring of uh, this first grade year, um, the kids had experimented a little with sketch noting. And like in kindergarten and first grade, um, it might be that some students rely a lot more on pictures than they do words. And you can sort of see the, you know, see the seesaw <laughs> balancing out there, you know, at the end of first grade and into second grade. Um, we'll sometimes weave our fingers together to show the how pictures and words like interlock in, in sketch noting. But this teacher just used sketch noting as just part of the writing process in her classroom. And so her students, after they were doing some biography projects and after the students had selected the books and like read the books or material in their plastic baggies, um, they were getting started writing and, um, you know, she introduced it and we had talked about this, like this, this kind of writing, because it is writing, um, this kind of writing is sort of for those of us who might consider ourselves to be a little on the daredevil side. Or maybe we're rule breakers, I should say. Maybe all of the rules of punctuation and spelling and capitalization, like that can be too much. And we know it's like important and we know that um, those things are useful in communicating um, in the best ways we can. But at first it's really important to spill your ideas out. You've got to get them out of there. And that's the messy part. And we can't skip the messy part to get to the neat and perfect part or we're going to miss the brilliant part. And so um, this teacher just encouraged kids to do an idea flood. And I love that little phrase, idea flood. And so she said, you know, you've got the four corners of the paper. And I just want you, now that you've read a little bit about the person you're interested in, I just want all those ideas to flow. And it can be pictures and it can be words and it could be a mishmash of both. Um, there's an example um, from this teacher in Ink and Ideas, and you'll see it's just a crude little pencil drawing, but you can see the students thinking just really appear on the page, and she just filled up the space. It's not systematic. It's not running left to right with return sweep. It's not even starting in the middle and working its way out. It's really an idea flood. And then um, this particular teacher, her name's Cindy, she, she then had the students like take an idea, take that idea flood and then start to do some more conventional writing working from that. And so in that way, uh, it sort of connects with your question about like assessing it. Um, I like to see it more um, part of the thinking process along the way and not something that any of us are putting ourselves in a position to judge. Now that's just 100% my opinion, so. <laughs> I don't disagree with you. Um, <laughs> so thinking about that, because it is making thinking visible and probably one to keep it low pressure so kids feel safe making those visual risks and you know putting themselves out there, you know, again, let's avoid assessing it, but that doesn't mean it can't function as a sort of formative assessment, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, what are some ways that you've seen teachers use it to help address misconceptions or to, you know, help kids grow and further their skills and learning? Because obviously, you know, in the terms of idea flood, that's more of a brainstorming, you know, development of your writing piece, but in terms of comprehension, sometimes we might see something or as we're, you know, conversing with kids and, you know, having little conferences as we move around the room and look at their sketches and kind of figure out what they know and 
what they don't yet understand, how do we then take that and use it to help our students grow? Yeah, so there's a good example in Ink and Ideas about this. And if you ever get a chance to look at the book, every so often there are some dark green pages. And those are vignettes that were written by teachers, parents, other people who had something to say about sketch notes, like a personal experience. And um, anyway, those, those um, little vignettes throughout the book, they almost address like all the questions you've asked today in one way or another. Um, there's one example that I, I think of right away and it's um, a student who sketch noted through some content about the Great American Dust Bowl. And the content actually came from a transcript from the PBS program, The American Experience. So it's some dialogue, um, some dialect, um, some uh, certainly like references to things around the time, like around in the 1930s that someone without much background knowledge, you know, it might be lost on them. But anyway, um, in a classroom in Indiana, we took that text, we chunked it into pieces, and we gave kids uh, a room to sketch with each chunk of text. And so we just did uh, have this cycle of reading and talking and sketching and reading and talking and sketching all the way through. Um, and so in that way, I told the students that day, like what I see on your pages when I walk around tells me so much more about you and your thinking than any multiple choice questions could ever give me or any essay, um, any kind of quiz or test I can think of. Um, and so I think I'm just constantly reminded when I see kids make their way through what might be considered unfriendly text uh, with a pen in their hand, that that's really one great way, not the only, but one great way to really, um, you know, formatively assess the, the depth of their thinking. I had to wait and yell at the dog for barking before I turned on my mic. <laughs> um, this, and there he goes again. <laughs> this has been so much fun. I learned a ton and I love that you mentioned, you know, every time I was asking questions, you're like, well, in the book right here. So everybody who's listening, you heard it. You need the book so you can see the examples <laughs> and the vignettes and all the stuff in there that is going to help us apply this to our classrooms more successfully. Um, so we're getting close to the end. And Jessica, before I give my final question, do you have any last questions? Well, I'll just say well, that Tani is um, very into comprehension too and has multiple resources. So we just kind of took a deep dive into the sketch notes today based on comprehension, but she has some other resources that I would encourage everybody to check out around other comprehension as well. Thank you for that. All right, so Tani, final question. Educational heroes. So who's somebody, you know, maybe early on in your career who really influenced your practice? And it might be one or two, but who kind of influenced who you became as a teacher and the way you handle things in the classroom. Hmm. Wow. That there are so many people. It's really hard to just narrow it down to one. Um, I have to, as one of my friends would say, hold the mirror closely on that one. Uh, and, and my first thoughts turn to my family members. I, I mentioned a little bit about my family earlier, but many, many of my family members, um, parents, aunts and uncles, um, had a very limited uh, formal school education uh, and yet um, found so many ways to immerse me and my sibling and cousins too um, in reading and writing experiences when we were young. So, um, I mean, I, I know that like they were my first teachers and so I can't not like mention that. Um, but I, I have a particular teacher that I would say, and I've tried to reach out to her in recent years um, and would love to be able to show my gratitude. 
um, a seventh grade reading and writing teacher who told me that I was a writer and gave me a postage stamp. <laughs> um, encouraged me to mail a poem into a contest that she had heard about. And I carried that stamp with me around in my little purse in middle school for a long time, um, not really believing that what she said was true. Um, but I feel like those little pieces of affirmation, those little comments that we make to students make this sometimes lifelong difference. And that teacher really did that for me. Uh, her name was Mrs. Yates. So thank you, Mrs. Yates. I think she's a big part of the reason why my books exist. That's awesome. We've had a lot of personal heroes lately on the podcast and I love it because it's not always the big name heroes. Lots of, lots of individuals in our own lives who have made a big impact. So thank you so much, Tani. This was fun because obviously I like to sketch note. And so <laughs> I was like, yay. <laughs> Well, for anyone listening, I would love to connect beyond this podcast. So um, the only social media I really use is Twitter. And so you can find me at Tanny McG. So just T-A-N-N-Y-M-C-G. And um, I can't wait until February to be with Colorado educators again. It's been a couple of years. Yep. And I will definitely put a link to Tanny's Twitter account. Um, there, I found a quick little one in 38 second or something minute video on her one of her books so i will put some resources in there that she talked about there were some other things she mentioned so all the all the links will be with the podcast but oh thank you i i'm honored um to have spent time with both of you today it's gonna be the best part of my day i have a feeling so thank you <laughs> thank you so much thanks for all you do for so many people and so many kids and thank you. And like Tani said, she will be at our 2022 CCIRA conference on literacy. So please make sure that you sign up in October and come and see her face to face. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to CCIRA.org. On CCIRA.org, you can join as a member or find great resources like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading. You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading. Or you can find us on Facebook, where we also have a members-only group that we're trying to build. And our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you. And again, if you're looking for new content, please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRAvideo at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.